Good evening. It is good to be with you. I was told earlier that you know, I need to preach fast because I have four degrees to work with. And in this audience, we also have someone from Maine. So uh, you got the extremes there. Yeah. So uh, it's good to be with you. Glad we can be together in a warm place, a comfortable place, and know that God has taken such good care of us. No matter where we may be and whatever we may be dealing with, God is there, ever so near His people. We'll open your Bibles back to Acts chapter 17, please. Acts chapter 17, and we're going to go back and and read from this text again, add a few more verses as we kind of just lay down the backdrop of our study this evening. So I'm going to start in verse 22, and we're going to go down through verse 31. So if you will please open up your New Testaments and follow along as we read this passage. Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship... I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, and nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. This God-inspired account tells us that there is a God It tells us that there is a God who created the world and all things in it. And it tells us that this God can be found. Every person, every person is able to find God. But everyone does not believe this. Everyone does not believe that they can find God, and so therefore, not everyone does. God can be found, and the Apostle Paul, as he preached to this multitude in the city of Athens of long ago, 
says, you can find God. Now, finding God is not an easy task, though. It's not an easy thing because God is not us. God is not us. God is so much more. So much more than mankind. He is so far beyond our limited comprehension and our limited imagination. For example, how does a mortal mortal man find the God whose throne is in heaven and whose footstool is earth? How can mortal man find such a God? Or how can man find the God whose ways and whose thoughts are higher than man's as the heavens are higher than the earth? Or how do you and I find the invisible God as Colossians 1 describes? How can you find God? And yet Paul who boldly preached in Athens long ago and was willing to die for what he preached, said, you can find God. This word find, you know, we we use that word in everyday speech. It's a common kind of concept, and it implies effort on our part. If you're going to find something, or if you're going to find somebody, that means you're going to put forth some kind of effort. Now, the Greek word from which this is translated fine simply denotes the idea of search or inquiry, discovery. And when used in a particular tense, like uh, the middle voice, I am told that it denotes the idea to find for oneself. That is, personally procure or obtain or accomplish the end of that which is in view. Now, the companion word here in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, the companion word is the word grope or another phrase, to feel after. So it talks about the idea of groping for God and finding God. Now, this idea of groping carries the idea of searching, yes, but searching with your hands. And basically the idea, you know, with your hands, you're, you're feeling a surface And once again, it emphasizes active motion, activity that is implemented and used to accomplish something. And so Paul, in his preaching to this multitude in Athens, says, God is not like the God you're serving. He's the creator of the universe and he and he and you need to seek this God so that you may grope for him and find him. Though he says he's not very far, really. He's not that far from any one of us, but he says you have to find him. And you can. You can find God. But allow me to suggest to you that you will not find what you do not look for. You will not find what you do not look for. Now, God is not some physical object which becomes misplaced. Like when you leave your glasses somewhere and you can't remember where you left them and they're lost. They're really lost. Or your keys or whatever. And so you have this idea. That's not God. You don't misplace God. 
And then later on, just accidentally, oh, there they are. Oh, there is God. No, that's, how, that's not how you're going to find God for yourself. To find God for yourself, you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to do some work. You're going to have to do some searching and researching. You're going to have to look for Him for yourself. You're going to have to look for Him for yourself. Loved ones who have found God for themselves can give you and me the tools and the support to help us in our search for God. But your spouse or your parents or your siblings or a friend, none of those individuals, none of them can do what you must do for yourself. You must find God for yourself. Now, we who've been blessed to be raised by godly parents, Christians, have helped us along the way. But the faith of loved ones, whether it's our spouse or whether it's you know, some other member of our family, the faith of our loved one is not, strong, is not a strong enough crutch. It is not a strong enough crutch to uphold you and me when we are day after day after day after day after day battling strong unbeliefs in the world, sometimes alone. Your parents' faith, your kids' faith, your spouse' faith, it is not enough of a crutch for you to rely on. You have to find God for yourself. It is also not enough faith, the faith that you perhaps have gained somewhat with the help of parents or other family members. It's not enough faith for you when you're dealing with your own personal temptations. Because those are your temptations. They're not someone else's temptations. They're yours. And so someone else's faith is not going to sustain you. And so you have to find God. And you need to find God for yourself. In Luke chapter 15, you've got the parables of of Jesus, of lost things or lost individuals. And in my judgment, the the lost coin illustrate what it takes to find that one thing. It illustrates to to find that, more importantly, that someone. Now, in this parable, the sheep and the coin are not God. God is not the sheep and the coin that's lost in this parable. But I would suggest to you the action that is being taught here by our Lord and Savior Himself is telling us when you lose something valuable, what do you do? You do what is necessary. You do whatever is necessary to find it. You do what it takes. You go after it. You clean out the clutter. You don't stop until you find it. You take much care looking for it. 
And that's the kind of effort that we need to understand that sometimes it takes for each of us to find God for ourselves. So our faith in God and in Christ and in the truth is our own faith built upon the teaching and the revelation of our Creator. This evening is the beginning of a series of studies I plan to do. And the series is going to t- approach this idea of finding God. And so I want to just begin to look at this study and begin with this question, and that is, does God exist? I suggest to you the very question, the very question implies that there is someone to be found. The very fact that humanity asks the question. Or at least, you know, from a, perhaps an intellectual or scholarly view, the question implies that there is a reasonable explanation to be gained. The fact that the question is asked implies something that's greater. And the fact that unbelievers, the unbelievers argue, and they do so in a very determined way, against God. The fact that they argue against God suggests that, that there is someone, from a, just a, kind of a, a philosophical, logical aspect, there is someone they just don't want to give allegiance to. Now that doesn't prove that God is. It's not the all-in-all all argument, but it's exactly the very fact that we ask the question. And humanity asks, and it has been asked the question throughout time, implies... That there must be someone. There is someone that exists. And I need to find that someone. And I need to know who that someone is. All other life forms are not arguing this point. Your pets are not arguing this point. The universe is not arguing this point. (laughs) Every, every living thing that exists in this universe, on this earth, you know, they're not writing books after books after books on the subject of whether there is a God or is not a God. They're not arguing the point. Man does, though. Man argues the point. For and against. You have both sides of the argument being presented in our culture today. But why is that? Why is it that we wrestle with this question? Why is it mankind, humanity, ask the question and wrestle to prove it or, or disprove it? It's because man is different. Man is different from anything else that exists. Man is unique. Man stands apart and stands above all other living things. And so now as we, as we consider the question, you know, the main point is that we're going to look at is simply this. And that is man's nature, the very nature of you and me, points to the reality of God. And that's going to be our focus tonight. You know, and, that, and so there's going to be other ways we're going to you know, answer the question. We're going to look at the question. And as we try to find God for ourselves, as, as young people, as middle-aged people, or as aged people, we need to find God ourselves and be founded in that faith. 
And so I suggest to you for tonight that our, your very nature points to that there is God. God does exist. Going back to our reading this evening, Acts chapter 17. One of the defenses for God that Paul makes, it's not the only one he, he uses in, in this uh, sermon, but one of the defenses for God that Paul makes, the idea, he, he focuses on the, the idea of man's existence and man's essence. And how that our existence and our essence is intricately connected to our Creator. To the Creator who is God. For example, in verse 28, in Him, in God, we live and move and exist. Our, our being is linked to him. Our nature points to this. And interesting, then in verse 29, he says, therefore, you know, he says, this being the case, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is simply the shape of what I make. You know, if my nature, if my existence and who I am is intricately connected somehow to a creator, the, this audience did not know him at first. But if it's connected to the Creator, and so you think, okay, what's my nature? Well, my nature is not that stone shape or that metal shape thing. That's not what my nature is. So why should I think that the nature of God is like that? And so I want to focus on just that point tonight. As we try to just, in a very simple way, kind of reason this idea and begin this idea, I'm going to find God. How do I do that? Because he's not like me. So how do I find someone that's invisible? Well, let's begin to look at some of the thoughts and the reasoning that helps understand that God does exist. Just because I cannot see him does not mean that he is not real. God is very real. And we need to be convinced of that. Particularly when you're dealing day after day with the ungodly world in which we live in. Because it attacks faith. It is, and the devices and the domain of Satan are designed to try to get you entangled so that you doubt and turn away from your Creator. Clearly the Scriptures bring up you know, an intricate connection to the fact that who you are and what you are is because of God and because of God's nature. And so you're familiar, you know, Genesis 1.26, where he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Yes, man's different. Yeah. As a living form, we are very different from all living. Oh, yes, you know, biologically, there's a lot of similarities. Intricate similarities with other life forms. But man is different. And what makes us different? Well, Genesis says what makes us different is because there is something within us that bears the likeness of the image of the Creator Himself. There is something within you that is like God. Solomon, the wise king of long ago, wrote in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes when he says that God has made everything appropriate in His time and He has also set eternity in their heart. Think about that. Not only is man made in the Creator's image, but also man possesses eternity in his heart. Now, I don't have a profound explanation to explain all of that. 
But there's something within us that's very powerful that, that we know that there's more to us than the here and now. And throughout time, throughout time, all over the world, the human heart, the human heart has craved for God. Throughout time, that has been the case. Why is that? Why is it humanity craves for God? Now, they may have a misunderstanding who God is. But why does the human heart crave for someone that is greater than themselves? Because within each and living soul, each and living person, they bear an image of the creator and eternity is in his heart. You know, there is a gen, you know, this idea, there's a general universal belief in a supernatural being or beings. Now, you know, once again, we're just from a logical standpoint you know, and start beginning, how can I find God? Well, one idea is when you think, okay, I can't see God, but how can I know God really exists? And we'll begin, well, humanity has been craving for this since the beginning of time. Why is that? Why do we have this universal belief, you know, in a very general way? Now, there are exceptions. You know, there are those that don't believe in a God or the God. Those are the exceptions, but the exception does not invalidate the rule. That the general rule throughout time all over the world is mankind has craved for God, for a supernatural being in their life. And when you think about that, not only has has mankind believed in the existence of such a one, this higher being... Not only has mankind believed in such a one, but also they have practiced acts of devotion and worship. And history testifies to this. That, you know, I need to understand, although I cannot see God, my very nature is telling me there is a God. My heart is craving to know Him. My heart is craving to have a relationship with Him. My heart is craving to understand that my life is not just the here and now. I'm so much more in this temporal dwelling. According to Paul, as we've already read in Acts 17, he says the ancient poets expressed this very idea when he says, we also are his offspring. And so in all nations throughout time, you know, religion has and still does dominate history and culture to this day. There is this nature about us that we're looking for something more, something outside of ourselves, something Bigger and greater than ourselves. And so there must be a reasonable explanation. There must be, in a sense, a reality that answers this universal craving for God. 
And, you know, and what it is is just simply it's this idea of what is called the general argument for God's existence. You know, it's just a, a very generic argument that God exists because mankind longs for Him. The psalmist expresses it well there in the 42nd Psalm when he says, As the deer pants for water brooks, so my soul pants for you. My soul pants for you, God. That craving is there. People are always looking for something more. And when they look in the wrong places, they may fill their, their life with something temporarily, but it will not rightfully fill that craving properly. But there's another argument that is used basing the idea of man's nature. You know, we're focusing on just on the idea, what about man points to the fact that God is. You know, I don't care what the world says. I don't care what my teachers say. I don't care what the professors uh, on the university, university level say as they try to argue against God and His reality and my connection to Him. You know, what about my nature points to that? One is this idea of the craving, the longing that we have for a higher being, a higher power. To guide us in life. The other one is another philosophical argument. It is something called the ontological argument. I don't expect you to remember that word. But it is simply the argument that basically, once again, is using the character of mankind. And it was this argument really came about in between the years 1000 to 1100 A.D. And so let's just kind of roughly a thousand years after the time of Christ, there was a bishop of Canterbury who began to use this argument, you know, to support and defend the existence of God. And very simply what it says is this, if man can have the concept of a perfect God, then he must exist. If man can have the concept of a perfect God, he must exist. Another way of saying the same thing is God must exist in order to cause the idea of a perfect God to enter our minds. Now, this is not the strongest argument for the existence of God. There are some that are much you know, stronger and, and, and easier to talk about. But these are arguments that are all related to you and me. What about us? What about us? tells me that there is a God. That tells me that I am more than just this flesh that's going to turn to dust and nothing more. And man's nature does point to that reality that we are more than just dust and that there is a power and a being beyond us and so you got this general argument that talks about the, the heart that has craved for some meaning and purpose related to God, to a creator. And then you got the second argument, the idea, if we can even think of, about God, that there is such a thing as a perfect God, well, then there must be a God. I like to kind of you know, think it about this way. When I think about this idea, you know, if this case, then there it must be. 
And that is, how does pure matter, just straight matter, how does pure matter, material substance, how does material substance develop intelligence? And then in turn, that developed intelligence developed the idea of God. Think about that. How do you, how, if it's just, if there's just pure matter, there's nothing more, just matter. How does that matter develop intelligence? And then that intelligence develop the idea of God if God does not exist. At least in my, in my thinking, that makes no sense to me. Matter cannot come up with what has no existence. And yet, intelligence ponders God. Matter cannot create and make up something that does not exist. And yet intelligence, intelligence, the intelligence that you have, the intelligence that every human being has, intelligence does ponder the question, does God exist? Who is that God? What is his his will for me? Those questions didn't come out of matter. They come out of intelligence. They come out of the nature of mankind, as the Bible says, that is made in the image of the Creator and whose heart possesses eternity. The last argument I simply very quickly want to share with you, and that is is the moral argument, and it is also connected to your nature. The nature of mankind. And the idea that our nature points to the fact that there is a God. And it, it, it is one of the ways we begin the search, we begin the journey to find God for ourselves. Young people and children, you know, you are blessed to have godly parents who have taught you God's word. And, and, you, and you have come you know, to, to, to know the scriptures and to believe the scriptures for yourselves. But when you leave home, it has to be your faith. You must find God for yourself. Because the world will test you beyond limits. It will push you. It will pressure you. It will pull at you. So you may be 9, or you may be 11, or you may be 15, or you may be 21. It doesn't matter. You need to find God, and you need to find God for yourself. And you need to know why there is a God. You need to have answers for yourself that gives you the foundation to stand on when the world throws you questions that you cannot answer. So the third and final argument is the idea of the moral argument. Once again, you know, it is connected to who you are. Now, the world, humanity, disagrees on all the particulars. You know, there's disagreement. We're not all gonna, you know, the world's not going to agree on all the particulars of, of what specifically is right and what is specifically wrong. But some level of morality governs men's choices. Even when you think of, of you know, an immoral standard, that is that person's standard of morality. 
You know, everyone has a standard that governs their choices and governs their behavior. Because everybody's making judgments. Everyone is discerning this or that. You know, everybody discerns circumstances. Everybody judges behavior based upon the standard they hold to. And so there is this idea, the very nature of mankind is such that we all have some kind of standard. Some standards are not good standards at all. They're not good at all. And, 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 and there appears to be no goodness in it. And so you can have the extremes of, of extremely bad standards to very, very good standards and everything between. And that's the application of it. The point is there's a principle that humanity judges and discerns situations and circumstances and behavior, their own and other people's, by a standard they hold to. Whatever that standard is. Animals do not do this. Animals do not do this. They live by instinct. And they're, and, and they're not arguing with one another about you know, your standard versus my standard and which is the right standard and which is the more moral standard. You know, animals aren't doing that. Why is that? Because man is different. Man's nature points to the reality that there is a God. And so, yes, the search for God begins with us. Within us, there is that, that point. There is a God and we need to find Him. You know, people in all societies expect and search for a sense of justice, do we not? Everybody wants a sense of justice. We want a sense of fairness in society. You know, we all want that. Particularly we want that if we have been personally wronged. If we have been personally mistreated. We want justice. We want fairness to be done. Why are there such things as justice systems in society? Why, is that, why do we have justice systems in societies? Now, some are quite corrupt, but you still have a system, whether it's a good system or a bad system. There is justice, judicial systems in all societies. Why is that? It's because within every man, there's a sense of morality. There's a sense of justice and affairs that needs to be executed. You know, why do we have jails and prisons? You know, where has this morality originated? It did not originate with matter. It did not originate with the dust from which you and I are made of. It originated somewhere else. I would tell you it originated with someone else. And any attempt to uphold morality apart from the one true holy God produces produces undesirable consequences, chaos, disorder, injustice. And we see that in our society today, and we see that being portrayed in God's inspired scriptures. In finishing up with the study of the book of Judges, clearly we see Israel was a mess. Why was Israel such a mess in the days of the Judges? Why were they in such a mess? It's because they had cast God's laws behind them. They had cast God's laws aside, and their doing was right in their own eyes. That's why it was such a mess. And that's why so many bad things were happening. Unjust, unjust, 
cruel things were going on. And then you turn to the New Testament. And you look in Romans chapter 1, and it describes there a society that even though they knew God, they, have, they did not honor Him, they did give Him thanks, and they became futile in their thinking, futile in their speculation. And what happens? Well, then society goes down the drain. That's what happens. And you have things described to us, such as in verse 28, he says, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a, a depraved mind. You know, what, is a, what does a depraved mind look like? Well, God tells us here what a depraved mind looks like. And depraved mind do, does those things that are not proper. What, what kind of things are not proper? Verse 29, a depraved mind is filled with all unrighteousness. And wickedness and greed and evil. That's what a depraved mind looks like. What, what are some specific examples of wickedness and ungodliness and evil? He says, well, things such as being full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. There you go. You know, that, that's a society that has strayed, you know, from the standard of morality as defined by the one true God, the one true creator, and the morality, the standard they use has, has ended up in chaos and disorder and injustice and every kind of evil behavior. That's what happens. But the fact that still, in those immoral, wicked places, people still long for fairness. They still long for justice. Why is that? Because the very nature of you and me points to the fact that we are of God <coughs> making. Not the outside of us, but the inside of us points to God. Now, finding God, truly finding God for yourself has its challenges, and we all recognize that. It's not like we get to just stumble over him. No, we have to do some searching. We have to work on our part to make sure we find God for ourselves. But you can find him. And he can be your God. Because he's really not that far away. He's ever so near. Now many think that he's so far removed that you know, he won't ever be found in their life. But he can be. But it takes a lot of work. And finding God does involve also an aspect of submitting to him. You can't find God without being willing to submit to his will and then begin to understand his nature. You will not know God fully as you should. Until you, by faith, render your will to His will and begin living for Him. If you're here tonight 
And you believe Jesus to be the Christ. You believe him to be the Son of God. But you're not rendered obedience to him. We want to encourage you to do that this very evening. Don't wait. Don't wait. If we're going to help you any way spiritually, please come now before we stand and sing the song that's been selected.